Heavenly Father, we come today, Lord, and we confess, Lord, that because of our old sinful flesh, Lord, so often we fail to see the beauty and the glory of Christ. Even day by day, we allow other things, things of this world, to cloud the joy that we have in Him. And so, Lord, today as we begin this journey in the book of Philippians, discovering the joy that only comes from Christ Jesus our Lord, we pray, O oh Lord, that You would open up our hearts and our minds and let us see the true value of Christ so that we might surrender our lives completely to Him and know the joy, everlasting joy that comes through Him. This I pray in Christ's name and for His sake. Amen. Well, if you have your Bibles with you this morning, turn with me to Philippians chapter 2. I mean, excuse me, Philippians chapter 1. Let's not go all the way to 2. We've got to start chapter 1. Philippians chapter 1, verse 1 and 2 is what we're looking at today. We're Starting a new series, Discovering Joy. We're going to work through the book of Philippians and discover the joy. It, Philippians is known as the book of joy. Uh, Paul talks about joy and rejoicing many times throughout the letter. And really his aim is to, for those who are reading his letter, the Philippian church, and for us today, is to, to discover the joy that comes through knowing Christ Jesus our Lord. And so that's what we're going to be considering as we we go through this, this study. So if you found your place there, let's look at that. And if you would, stand with me in reverence to the reading of God's holy word. Philippians chapter 1, verses 1 and 2. Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are at Philippi with the overseers and the deacons. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. May the Lord add blessings to the reading of his holy, inspired, and inerrant word. And may he write its eternal truth on all our hearts. You may be seated. We believe as Americans that every human being is created equal in the eyes of God and is uh, has an inalienable right to, to pursue life, liberty, and the pursuit of what? Happiness. Happiness. And we all desire happiness, don't we? We want to be happy. But the thing about happiness is, is that happiness is, is based on an external circumstance or situation. It's based on something outside of us right? It's the environment that we are in or a product that we might have, right? A material possession. In fact, that's what the word happiness is mean. The base word of happiness, so the root there is hap, the word hap. And hap means that it's by luck or by lot, right? It's something external from us. If, if we are in a, a uh, it's a nice sunshiny day outside and we're at the park with our family having a good time, there's happiness there, right? 
happiness. It's, it's due to that circumstance, that time. It's just by happenstance. It's that happening, right? It, it, it's based upon that. It's something external. But the thing about happiness is that happiness is short-lived. Happiness is short-lived if our situation changes, if our circumstances change. This week, we're, we're talking about there's going to be storms to come through, and so there's no sunshiny days outside, and we begin to get the long face. And, you know. Or if we're sick, you know, I don't like to be sick. Do you like to be sick? I don't like to be sick, so I'm not very happy when I'm sick. You see, happiness is, is not long-lived. It has to do with our environment. It has to do with our circumstances. It has to do with things outside of us. Now, our commercial industry, they aim at this. They want us to be happy, so they give us the promise that if you buy our product, you'll be happy. That's the whole point of it. It'll bring happiness to your life. But when that product runs out, guess what? Happiness goes away. So while happiness is a good thing, it's a, a delight that we have, happiness is good, but it's not the chief thing that we should strive for. The chief thing that we should strive for is not happiness, but joy. You see, joy is far better than happiness because joy comes from deep down within. Joy is not based upon material things and you possessing those things. It's not based upon our situation and our circumstances. It's not based upon the, the outward things in life. It's something down deep within us, and it never goes away. Joy is something that you can have even when you're, you're sick and in bed and when you feel miserable, there's no happiness in your life. You can still experience joy. Because the joy is not based upon your feelings. It's not based upon your environment. But it's based upon something deep down inside. So while the world pursues happiness, what we really need, we need joy. And real, lasting joy is Christ-centered joy. Let me say that again. Real and lasting joy is Christ-centered joy. That's our sermon in a sentence this morning. And that's what we're going to see here in this letter, the beginning, this salutation of Paul here, his opening of this letter. He, that's his goal. He wants the people of Philippi to know joy, lasting joy, joy that doesn't, isn't based upon current circumstances, but joy that comes from within and being a part of Jesus Christ, our Lord. So we want to see that today. Real and lasting joy is Christ-centered joy. Now, as we begin to look at our passage then this morning, as we think about this, and this, it, it, we don't notice this completely in the verse itself, but we understand the, the situation that Paul is in here. And as we think about the situation, the context of this letter, we want to point out that enemies of Christ aim to steal joy. Enemies of Christ aim to steal joy. As we think about the circumstance of this letter, the situation of this letter, Paul is imprisoned for the gospel. As Paul is writing this, he, he's writing this letter of joy. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I say rejoice. While he's talking about joy and rejoicing, Paul is in a Roman prison. 
In fact, we see this in the book of Acts. In the book of Acts, the end, the last few chapters of the book of Acts talks about Paul's imprisonment. And it's in that imprisonment. He's arrested in, in Jerusalem, and then he's carried to Rome. And the book of Acts ends with where this book picks up. It ends with Paul in a Roman prison somewhere around 60 to 62 AD. Paul in a Roman prison for the cause of the gospel. He is in prison for the cause of the gospel. You see, Satan wants to rob us of our joy. He wants to take us into situations and circumstances that will rob us of our joy. But there's no need to lose joy. Paul is in prison for the gospel. Second, the Philippian church is under attack for the gospel. The Philippian church is under attack for the gospel. Paul has a reason for writing this letter. He begins to address issues, and we'll see these issues being addressed as we walk through the letter. And I just want to cover some of them right now, kind of introduce those to you now so you can kind of get them in your mind as you think through this letter. First of all, they're under attack from sin and Satan. They're under attack from sin and Satan. There's, there's, Satan is, is, introducing temptations of disunity into the church. Satan is coming in and he's tempting people, causing them to kind of to, to build strife within the church, and there's beginning to be some tension within the church, and there's some uh, disunity there. People are, are arguing and disputing over this, that, and the other, and, and we see it beginning here. Paul wants to, to come in and write this letter to kind of nip that in the bud before it gets out of hand, because when we are disunified, when we allow disunity to disrupt the church, it begins to rob us of our joy. It robs us of our fellowship with Christ, it robs us of our fellowship with one another, and it will rob us of our joy. So sin and Satan try to attack those who are living for the gospel Another attack, the, the, another avenue of attack is from pagans and persecution. Pagans and persecution. Have to understand a little bit about the, the city of Philippi. The city of Philippi is up there in Greece. It's along the, the Via Egnatia. The Via Egnatia, which was a, a Roman established trade route. It was a Roman road. You ever heard of Roman road? They were famous, the Romans were famous for the roads because they made these wonderful, great, wonderful roads that were nice and wide, and it was all for the purpose so that if, the, if the, the empire came under attack over here, they could move their armies there real quick. And they were famous for building these great, wonderful roads. But the, the plus side for the people with these Roman roads was that they made absolutely wonderful trade routes. People, not only could they get the army from one place to another real quick, but they could also get their goods, their trades, and that sort of thing to, from one point to the other really easy. So this was one of those trade routes, and the, the city of Philippi was right there on one of this major trade route that cut all the way across northern Greece. It was also a Roman colony. The, the city of Philippi was actually founded by Philip, King Philip, the Grecian king, King Philip, who was the father of Anthony the Great. You know him? We've heard of him. 
Well, Philip, his father, established this city, and it and the Romans, the Romans, Romans, excuse me, when the Romans came in and came under power, they saw Philippi as a strategic city that they wanted to build up and make sure they had strong power and influence there. So what they would do, they made this a Roman colony, and what they would do to, to establish this Roman colony was when Roman soldiers came to the, the age of retirement, they would take those Roman soldiers and they would put them in these cities. And so the, the city of Philippi was a Roman colony filled with Romans, and so it had lots of Roman influence. And what came along with the Roman influence was the Roman influence of paganism. Well, they, didn't, they, they didn't believe in one God. They believed in many gods. They believed in the, the God of this and that and all these other things. And, and so Philippi was heavily influenced by the pagan religions. And because it was heavily influenced by the pagan religions, it was also a source of, of economic growth, right? Because if you have paganism, you worship, worship idols, guess what? If you are a person who manufactures these idols, if you make these carvings and these images, then you can go to the city market there and you can sell them. And so it was very economical for this Roman uh, city to be heavily pagan. Well, the thing is, when the gospel begins to come in and people begin to trust in Christ, guess what happens to paganism? It begins to suffer. It begins to suffer. And when paganism begins to suffer, the people who make money off of paganism begin to suffer. And so the, the pagans and those who profited off of paganism, they would persecute the church because they didn't want the church in Philippi. You see a great example of this in Acts chapter 16 when Paul and Silas first bring the gospel to the city of Philippi. They're there in the city of Philippi and Paul, there's this uh, little occult slave girl who's following them around. She's demon-possessed and she's following them around and said, these are... Prophets of the Most High God. These are prophets of the Most High God. Just announcing this over and over, and it became annoying for one thing. But then Paul had mercy upon this little girl. And he cast out the demon. Well, that was good for the little girl, the little slave girl. But it was bad for her owners because they made money off of her. They used her. They would make profits off of her. They would, she would get into these fits of rage with the, with the demon takes possess of her and, and, and utter all these kind of shouts and everything. And, and people would pay money to come and see this and, and to get something out of it. Well, when, she, when Paul cast out the demons, their source of profit was gone. And so they had Paul and Silas arrested and beaten and thrown in jail because they had messed with their pocketbook. And so when you see the book of Philippi here, and as we begin to work through there, we're going to see that, that the first thing Paul addresses is that persecution. You're, you're under persecution for the sake of the gospel. 
See, the gospel stayed. The people who were in that church that, first, that Paul established in, in Philippi, they stayed and they, they lived it out and the gospel began to grow. They became a thriving church and the people of the city didn't like it and they fell under persecution for the call of the gospel. So there's Satan and sin, there's paganism, persecution, and then there's finally there's false teachers and false doctrine. False teachers and false doctrine. This was something that came through uh, throughout. We see this in every letter. I think every letter of the New Testament addresses false teachers of one perspective of another. Because that's where Satan wants to hit you. Satan wants to hit the church with false teaching. If you can lead people away from God into false doctrine, hey, then he's succeeded. That's what he did with Adam and Eve, right? Did God really say... And that's what Satan wants to do. He wants to bring in false doctrine into the church and draw people away from the true gospel of Jesus Christ. And so Philippi, the church at Philippi, is under attack for the sake of the gospel. It's the enemies of Christ aim to steal our joy. It aims to steal our joy. They want to destroy our joy. The world and the things of the world want to rob you of joy. What was our memory verse? We talked about this last Sunday. What was our memory verse from last week? Verse John chapter 2, 15 through 17. Do not love the world or the things of the world. For if anyone loves the, things, if anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. But the things of the world... The desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, and the pride of life. It's not from the Father, but it's from the world. And the world is passing away along with its desires. But whoever does the will of God abides forever. You see, the world wants to rob us of our joy because the world, every joy that we can get in the world, every happiness that we could get from the world, it's fleeting, it's temporary, it's fading away. True, lasting joy is only found in Jesus Christ. So enemies of Christ aim to steal our joy, but real and lasting joy is found in a Christian's position in Christ. It's found in Christ. It's found in Christ. Real, lasting joy is found in Christ. And for us Christians who trust in Christ, it's found in our position in Christ. And now let's look at our text. Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus. He begins to, to show us what it means to be in Christ, to have a place, a position in Christ. And that first word there, Paul and Timothy, servants. Servants, literally, that word there is the, the Greek word doulos, and it's slaves. Slaves are bond servants. We are equal slaves of Christ. That's what he's saying there. We're equal slaves of Christ. Now, there's two parts of that. Let me just go into that a little bit. First of all, we're equal, equals in Christ. Notice there, Paul and Timothy, servants. Paul and Timothy. Now think about this. Paul was an apostle of Christ. He was the apostle to the Gentiles. He was one of the big guys in the, the first century church, right? He was one of the ones that they, they wrote about. This is Paul. 
Timothy, on the other hand, was like a son to Paul. Paul picked him up on his second missionary journey. He picked him up and began to take him along with him. And so after the third missionary journey now, Paul is in prison and Timothy is right there with him. He is a son in the faith to Paul. But yet Paul doesn't say the apostle Paul and Timothy the servant. No, he says Paul and Timothy, servants. Did you catch that? Paul doesn't put himself on a pedestal. No, he puts himself right there even with Timothy. Paul and Timothy. Yes, Paul was more mature in the faith. Yes, Paul was an apostle to the Gentiles. And Timothy was his son in the faith. But in Christ, they were equals. They were equal slaves. Dear friend, we are all equals in Christ. Whether you are an old-time faithful saint or a new believer, we are equals in Christ. There's no hierarchy of value in Christ. We're all equal in Christ. We're equals in Christ. Furthermore, we're slaves of Christ, slaves of Christ, bondservants of Christ. Now, when we think of the word slave, we've got this kind of skewed vision, a skewed idea of slavery. We think about U.S., the slavery that took place here in the United States, and that was a forced type of slavery, a bad type of slavery. It was forced upon people. They were robbed from their homes. They were put into slavery by force and forced to work. But that's not the kind of slavery that Paul has in mind here. This is a bondservant. This is one who surrenders to a master willingly. He wants to come under him. The word slavery here means a person who is legally owned by someone else and whose entire livelihood and purpose was determined by their master. Now, the Old Testament, they give a way for a servant to come under a master willingly and give themselves to that master because they love that master. That master takes care of them, loves them, and so they want to give their lives to that that master, that Lord. And so the Old Testament passage says if you have someone, they want to become your slave, then what you do is you take them, you take their earlobe, and you put it up against the doorpost, and you drive an awl through their ear, piercing their ear, so that they are marked as your servant. But that is a willing thing. It's not like they took them and said, oh, I'm going to put this in your ear, and you're going to be... No, they, it's, I want to be yours. You're a good master. You're a good Lord. I'm taken care of under your care. I want to serve you. And that's the kind of view that Paul has in mind here. We who are in Christ, we're willing servants. We're willing slaves. We see the beauty and the glory of Christ, and we want to serve him and love him and be a part of his household. You see, dear friend, we're all slaves to something. Scripture tells us we're the slave to sin and death. We're a slave to the spirit of this world, Satan, or we're a slave to Christ. And Jesus tells us in Matthew eleven twenty nine 29 through 30, take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and, I will f- and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Being a servant of Christ is a great thing. It's an awesome thing. Because he came 
and gave himself to free you from the bondage of sin and death. You are a slave to sin and death, a slave to the prince of the power of the air, the Satan who works in the sons of disobedience here and now. That's who you are a slave to. But in Christ, you're freed from that. He died on the cross to free you from that. He died on the cross to take the penalty for your sin and to break the bonds of slavery. Slavery to Christ is true freedom. In Christ, we are equal slaves of Christ. Not only are we slaves to Christ, but we're holy children of God. To all the saints in Christ Jesus who are at Philippi with the overseers and the deacons, that word saints comes from the, the word hagias, the Greek word hagias, and, and here's the plural form, and in the plural form, it means saints. So hagias singular means holy, holy. And so what does it mean when he says saints, saints in Christ Jesus? Those who are holy in Christ Jesus. You see, there's a wonderful thing about when we come to know Christ and we have our place and our position in Christ. We become saints. We become holy. That word holy means separated. Separated. We're separated out. Separated out from the rest of the world for a purpose. We're separated out for service to God. who is the creator and giver of all good things. <laughs> we are holy unto God. We're separated out for God. We are God's children. We're his children, a people of his making. We are his. We are holy children in Christ Jesus, heirs with Christ we're not just separated out to, to, to live exa as examples in this world. We're separated out as true children. That means there's inheritance coming, right? If you're a child of someone, you have an inheritance coming to you. And in Christ Jesus, we are seated with him in heavenly places, Ephesians chapter 2. We are seated with him in heavenly places. That means we are with him. We are seated with him. We are children at the table of God. We have the same inheritance that Christ receives because he is the son of the living God, we have in him. In Christ, we are equal slaves of Christ and we are holy children of God. In Christ, we have a position and a place in this world. We don't just have to wait until... until the second coming, we don't have to wait to everlasting, to eternity. We have a place and a position in this world. He has seated us in heavenly places. That, that, that phrase is, is in the present. We're already there. We're already seated with him. It's like we already have it. Yes, we're still living in the wilderness here. We're still living in this world. But in Christ Jesus, we've gained an inheritance. We have the Holy Spirit who lives within us who makes us new creatures in Christ, who gives us new desires, new wants in life, who gives us the power to live and serve God with our lives. In Christ, we are slaves to Christ and we are holy children to God. We have reason to live life and we have 
and we can live it more abundantly. That's the wonderful thing about the joy that comes in Christ. It abides within us as the Holy Spirit abides within us. And it's a joy that is abundant and unexpressible, unexplainable, so that even when we suffer, when we're in Christ, we can have joy. Real lasting joy is found in a Christian's position in Christ. And second, real and lasting joy is found in a Christian's reward in Christ. A Christian's reward in Christ. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. That first word there, we have the grace of God. What kind of reward do we get in Christ? We get the grace of God. What a wonderful reward we have in that. We have the grace of God. Now, Paul here, he takes this. This is a normal Greek greeting, salutation. Normally, they would say greetings. But Paul changes it slightly to say grace. In the the Greek, the word... the. Greetings, the word greetings is the word Cairo. And the word for grace is kairis, kairis. And so there's this subtle difference, but it's a subtle difference that Paul makes with a purpose and a point. He's not just greeting them with this happy little greeting. He wants to remind them of the grace of God. What is the grace of God? The grace of God, it is the free, un- undeserved favor of God, the free, undeserved favor of God from which all the blessings of God flows. In Christ Jesus, we have the full blessing of God boiling out and pouring out upon us. It's first of all poured out upon us in Christ Jesus himself. God sent his son into the world so that he might become sin so that we who know no sin might become the righteousness of God. That's the first wonderful gift of grace that God pours out upon us. He sent his son to die on the cross for us, to reconcile us to God, so that he can pour out more of the fullness of his blessings upon us. Dear friend, even when we're going through difficult times in life, God is still pouring out his blessings upon us. Even the hardships that you are facing, that is a blessing from God. Romans chapter 8, verse 28, for those who love God, all things work together for good. That doesn't mean that all things are good. That doesn't mean all things are are lovely. All things make you happy. But God takes all things. He takes your situation. He takes your circumstance. Whatever you're going through, when you trust in Christ and trust in God, God is using that to create a blessing in your life. You may not understand it, You may not ever understand it, but God is using that. That's the promise of the Lord. He is using that. And he's going to take that difficult situation, that hardship in your life, and he is going to use that for a blessing in your life. You can trust that. God said it. He will do it. So 
We have the grace of God. The reward in Christ is the grace of God and the peace of God. The peace of God. Paul here unites to that, that normal uh, Greek greeting, the Hebrew greeting, peace. That word peace, it's, it, it comes from the word, the, the Hebrew word shalom. You ever heard someone say shalom? Shalom is the, 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 the Jewish idea of peace. And it's not just, you know, peace from your enemies. It's a completeness, a wholeness of peace. Peace of, of body, soul, mind, heart. It's, it's complete peace. And so Paul is saying, one of the, he's bringing to their mind that one of the rewards that they get in Christ is being in Christ, right? From God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. It's coming from God. It's coming from Christ is the peace of God, that wholeness, that complete peace that comes only from God. It comes from the redemption of the blood of Jesus Christ. Romans chapter, chapter 3, starting in verse 21, but now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. Oh, the law and the prophets bear witness to it. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified. Did y'all get that? All have, fallen, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. All are rightly condemned before God, yet are justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood, that is an appeasing sacrifice. God's wrath wants to pour out against sin, but Christ came to, to appease the wrath of God, to settle the wrath of God, to soothe God's wrath by absorbing it upon himself. God put him forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance he had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. You see, we were subject to the wrath of God. Our wage for our sin was the wrath of God, but Christ came to soothe the wrath of God by receiving it upon himself, becoming, becoming an atoning sacrifice for us so that we might be redeemed from that price and reconciled to God. We were once enemies of God. We were once the objects of God's wrath, his righteous anger against sin. Yet Christ came and by his blood being poured out, he reconciled us to God. So that we're, not lo we're no longer at war with God, but we're at peace with God. Complete, whole, everlasting peace comes only through Jesus Christ, our Lord. In Him, in Him alone, we have the peace of God. So in Christ, we have 
a far greater treasure than anything this world has to offer us. Far greater. All the trinkets and treasures of this world is nothing compared to the treasure we have in Christ. In Christ, we have the redemption. We have peace with God. We have the grace, the overflowing goodness of God pouring out upon us day after day after day. We have the grace of God, His unmerited favor upon us, and we have that peace in Christ Jesus. So let me ask you today, in your quest for peace, have you found that peace? In your quest for joy, have you found true, everlasting joy? Perhaps you're here today and you've been searching for joy in all the things of this world. You've been pursuing joy in the delights of the flesh. The things that are pleasing to the flesh. But what happens as this flesh grows older and older, those things diminish more and more. Or perhaps you've been seeking joy in the things, the desires of the eyes. Jewelry and trinkets and material possessions that, that look good. But in the end, they only tarnish and fade away. They rust and are destroyed. And one day, all of those things will be wiped out. Or perhaps you've been seeking joy and the pride of life. And the things you accomplish the things that you do in life. Look at me and who I am. But I promise you, the highest hill that you can find, you will fall off of it eventually. And if not in this life, you will fall off of it when Christ returns and He claims His throne. And He will cast you down. True, everlasting joy only comes from Christ. Do you know him today? Principal Rainey, of whom a child once remarked that she believed he went to heaven every night because he was so happy every day, once used a fine metaphor about Christian's joy. Joy, he said, is the flag which is flown from the castle of the heart when the king is in residence there. Do you know the joy of having Christ being resident in your heart? If not, you can receive him today. Just turn to him. Just turn away from your pursuit of finding joy in this world. Turn away from your pursuit of sin. Turn away from your your life of rebellion against God and turn to Christ, surrender to Him, and you'll find joy everlasting and full of glory. Oh, Heavenly Father, we thank You, Lord, that even as You created us for joy, and yet we spurn that joy and turn away from that joy and, and pursue the 
vain happinesses of this world, the happenings of this world. In pursuit of joy, we thank you, Lord God, that you came, you sent Christ to die on the cross so that we might have joy everlasting. And you raised him up again, assuring us of the hope that we have in him. Oh, Lord God, we praise you for the joy we have in Christ. And Lord God, if there are any here who do not know that joy, we pray, Lord, that you would reveal that to them today. Let them surrender to Christ. Know him and discover real, lasting joy. And this I pray in Christ's name. Amen.